From the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. It's a big day today. Today's my last... Uh, my last rodeo here at 14th and G, and I'm handing over the, the golden microphone to my colleague, uh, Dean Hinkson. Dean, welcome. CR, thank you so much. As you can see, uh, I have grown a beard. Uh, I'll be popping my contacts out and putting on a pair of glasses, and I think we both already use the same amount of product in our hair, so uh, I'm, I'm really morphing into you. <laughs> so going forward, Dean's going to Dean's gonna be hosting this podcast, uh, but for today, we did it together. Uh, and we have our old pals David Castagnetti and Bruce Melman in here talking ostensibly about their last uh, slide deck, but really, as usual, we got them into some politics. So here's David Castagnetti and Bruce Melman. Okay, welcome back to 14th and G. We have a full crowded table today. We've got David Castagnetti, <laughs> Bruce Melman, and Dean Hankson here. Uh, ostensibly, we're here to talk about the most recent deck, but before we get there, Thanksgiving just ended. We're headed to a short run to Christmas. You know, what's going to happen in town? What's going to happen on the Hill? I got some specifics. But Not much. <laughs> Pretty sleepy December ahead of us. So we're obviously going to have a big... Uh, impeachment's going to steal a big chunk of the oxygen. Where, where do you think they go from, from here on that? I mean, I think there are two things they probably have to do impeachment and funding of government. Those feel like the two that are well, they, they, must do. They don't do's. have to do impeachment. They, <laughs> they, they will, will, but they don't have to. <laughs> I did find it interesting that uh, uh, the Republicans would like a chairman of a committee to testify before another committee. I thought that was kind of an interesting move today. Um, those are the two must-dos. I mean, I still think there's a, a potential that we can still get to a trade agreement on USMCA. Still a potential we may see some kind of drug pricing bill on the House floor. Those seem to be the active things. And then we'll have to look at adding a tax extenders, hit, you know, medical device. Does that get added to a funding bill here at the end of the year? And add the, uh, the National Defense Authorization and, Act. And you got National Defense Authorization that's kind of hovering, although, I, you know, th- th- I just don't know how you crunch all of this into a couple of weeks, uh, basically, is what we got. And two of the weeks will be taken up by impeachment. So so here's a question, and I'll ask Dean this one. Um, what's the president want to get done? What's the administration want to get done between now and Christmas? Are they Are they just in... I'd like to get to Christmas and survive, or, or you know, are they really hoping to get NDAA and government funding taken care of? I think they're I think they're hoping to get that NCR. At, you know, on 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 the NDAA front, uh, you know, it, I think on a lot of these issues, Space Force, Border Wall, it remains Space, space, space Force. <laughs> That's a must do. You can't miss that one. <laughs> You know, there. How how much? Uh, you know, how much? Ten nine. <laughs> uh, Mick Mulvaney had his Space Force cap on uh, uh, on the way that. out of town last week. Um, <clears throat> it remains to be seen. You know, how much they're 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 fully engaged. I mean, the folks that would normally be working this issue these issues are uh, are engaged elsewhere uh, on the impeachment front. So. 
you know, it's it seems particularly on that, uh, you know, that their their attention is just taken up elsewhere. What do we miss, Bruce? <clears throat> So I, nothing at the tactical level. I mean, broadly, the president wants to get reelected, and everything works back from there. And the most important thing to get reelected, number one, for the president is a strong economy. And so whether it's trade or budget shutdowns or a variety of, uh, of uh, regulatory matters, the president is totally focused on no recession. What do we do to maximize uh, economic activity, economic confidence, economic performance? Uh, secondarily, to get reelected, in some ways, the president's goal is how do I get the Democrats out of position? It's a it's a judo match. You know, if the Democrats had Bernie Sanders or Senator Warren as the uh, as the nominee, he and many people would say they're out of position. They're going to have a harder time picking up the votes that they need. You know, likewise, if uh, the Dems become so spit and mad over impeachment that they really aren't talking about uh, regular pocketbook neighborhood things that could have them out of position too and so i think that's what the president and his teams uh, are thinking about um casto what's the state of the democratic primary at this point in time we're 60 days out or something crazy like that from new hampshire we also have uh, a few people dropped out today we have a billionaire entered the, the race what's uh, so it's down to 50. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. who even knew joe sestak was running yeah. <laughs> Sad. bullock dropped out today well I, I think the first thing of of like huge note to to note with the with to use the president's words is michael bloomberg is also a medford high school graduate the difference between david castagnetti and michael bloomberg is david castagnetti admits he graduated from medford high school <laughs> and mike bloomberg has fifty-four billion dollars. <laughs> only, only those two. Other than that, it's exactly the same. Here's to me. I think here's the interesting thing that people haven't focused on. Right? We always talk about disruption and how important disruption's been in politics and in the business world. Michael Bloomberg is really trying to disrupt the Democratic primary. When you think about it, he's really looking at an all-in Super Tuesday strategy kind of win march 4th win march 11th amass as many delegates as possible by running television ads and other ads on social media right so i think that to me is the interesting thing to pay attention to in the disruption space of this i mean i think clearly now as as we look at the early four primary states it's it's pretty diverse and everyone's gonna kind of come out a winner in the top four right buddha judge will have his moment. Biden will have his. Mrs. Warren will have his. Hers, excuse me. And uh, Sanders will have his, it feels like. But at the other side is, the, you know, who's the other candidate that's going to get some oxygen other than Bloomberg? You know, will it be a chance for Harris to, to kind of reboot? Or does Booker get his moment in the sun here before it feels like his campaign starting to move in a very different direction? But I think there's a lot of activity uh, a lot of angst starting to build up, and voters will actually start to vote here pretty soon. I think next time, CR, when we're on the air, the voters will actually vote and have some decision-making in this, and it won't just be a bunch of polls and pundits that we're looking at. Although recognizing the known historic fallibility of December polls, uh, right now it really looks like you guys are going to have four different winners of your first four races mm -hmm heading into Super Tuesday. Let's just hope the pollsters do a better job in this election than they did with uh, the last election in 2016. Well, we, you and I keep debating this. The, the, obviously, the guy at Wisconsin was asleep at the switch, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the national poll average was 3%, which kind of nailed it. Right, so one way to know who's not going to win a Democratic race, CR, who are you working for? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even work here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> <Shots>. <laughs> um, 
All right, so I'm going to make a very <laughs> graceful podcast host transition here. Um, the president is on an airplane to NATO right now, which I think is a little bit ironic for the next part of our conversation, um, live tweeting as we speak. Um, your recent deck, or the, the firm's recent deck, um, is about globalization and hyper-globalization. Um, do you want to start with what's hyper-globalization and how do we get there? Sure, although the, the deck is about deglobalization. Sure. But, uh, for 50 years, the world uh, had a kind of predictable cadence to it. It was the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, East versus West, and America viewed trade and globalization in part as our strategy to win the Cold War. It was really successful. And at the very start of the 90s, 1989, when the Berlin Wall falls down, the very early 90s, you had two things happening. First, uh, everybody agreed that the Western liberal small L capitalism and market-based systems defeated the communists, proof of which is the Soviet Union was on its way out the door. Concurrently, our military, enabled by our technology, which, which is so innovation-driven, uh, went head-to-head -head against the world's fourth largest army in one in 100 hours. You can bookend those two things, where the entire world saw we had the right economic system and we had uh, the most powerful military two decades later, literally two decades later, when uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, our troops were, were very much uh, fighting difficult quagmire-type actions, not nearly the same as when you're head-to-head -head against a large army. And the Great Recession, led by a financial collapse where products sold by our own Wall Street uh, turned out to be uh, securitized crap. And, and uh, you don't want to buy crap, you don't want to buy securitized crap because <laughs> it's just a lot more of crap. Um, and the whole world kind of woke up and realized first maybe the uh, U.S. system is not exactly right and second maybe the U.S. is not unstoppable and that period when the Cold War had ended that was two decades of hyper-globalization came to an end and the last decade has been the rise of a of a deglobal era. In, in terms of deglobal, uh, the deglobal era, it's also a little bit where does the United States stand in all this and what's our role and responsibilities moving forward and we and we're seeing this a lot more back in the business community the business community is taking stands on major issues as well that they haven't in the past look at the climate uh, the paris climate accords and the chevron ceo recently right so you you're seeing some change that's taking place and what does this mean for the united states moving forward uh in the rest of the world yeah and i wonder kind of um, as we've, we, you described the hyper-globalization, and obviously we all listen to the president who, who was kind of America first, America only. Um, what's that mean? I mean, are, does it mean trade deals aren't going to happen? Does it mean, um, you know, businesses are going to have to locate here? I mean, I think that's always the dream, but is that actually happening? Well, as a going forward matter, it's, it's history being figured out and written as we speak. Uh, nobody quite knows, but part of the reason for the for the pendulum swinging back is <coughs> both in the U.S. and around the world concerns that maybe this hyper-globalization wasn't working for enough people. And some might look at income inequality, some might look at the less competitive overall business climate, some might look at the CEO-to-worker pay ratio. Um, uh, a lot of people observe what McKinsey described as a superstar economy and conclude that they're not sure they're superstars. There's a lot of fear about the ability both in the United States and around the world for folks to take care of their family in a world that's increasingly technological, increasingly rewards skills and education and access to capital and being in the right sector and being in the right city. 
increasingly in the U.S. and around the world, people wonder if they're on the right side of that equation. And that's a little bit why both the Sanders, the Bernie bros, but also the, uh, the, the Trump coalition concluded that the so-called elites, the Washington consensus, didn't actually have their back. And the populism that's happening around the world are people rising up saying, uh, it, the system's not working for me and the established parties aren't looking out for me. Hillary Clinton's more of the same. I'm going to try something different. What's in the next steps here? Is people looking around the, you know, look, the internet has tied the globe together nicely. The, the you know, you have the ability to, I was just thinking of smaller things, like you have the ability to, to follow your favorite EPL team no matter where you are on planet Earth. Um, you know, where... Um, EPL's baseball with your feet, cast <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, you know, I mean, the fact that my kids watch live, sp live sports, live sports from London in our house here every weekend is a, is a thing, but how do we square that circle? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's a, a lot of moving pieces to this, our, especially for our kids. Mm -hmm. The world has become that much smaller in many ways, right? Because as you say, your kids wake up on Saturday morning and they turn on the English Premier League. How do you like that, Bruce? Whoa. Pretty good for a baseball <laughs> guy, huh? Um, so so you, you can see that folks are, are definitely paying attention, but there is this angst that has to be rectified in terms of where's my job coming from? What does the world look like? How do I move forward and get and make more money than my parents made or have a better lifestyle than my parents? That's certainly the challenge that's in front of, of our world. I also just believe on a much more practical basis, on a short-term basis, if I was the president, I'd probably cut a deal with China sometime in the second quarter, right? That kind of shows it was the greatest deal ever, especially as we kind of resolve USMCA here. Uh, and, and what does that mean in terms of job creation and the opportunity to live in a new, a new de-global world, and how does that fit? And Bruce, if you're advising your clients, you're you know, I uh, am advising my clients. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, uh, when you are advising your clients, there we go. Um, you know, what are you saying about this? Well, uh, that in this new world, there are higher political risks, that government as a stakeholder is far more active, aggressive, and far less predictable. And so uh, one option is to just hope that things will continue to uh, proceed along. But more realistically, most of the folks we work with are already hearing from headquarters uh, more questions, greater uncertainty, and, and a growing understanding that government relations, government as a stakeholder, has a, uh, has a higher impact on the business's bottom line than it's had before. So a lot of our thinking and what we write and publish about is driven by the kind of questions that we're getting asked by businesses that are no longer as simple as who's going to take the subcommittee when when the congressman retires and is now much more likely to ask, how do you see U.S.-China relations unfolding over the next two to five years? Because we got to put a billion dollar fab somewhere and we got to know where to put it. <laughs> I, I think just on that on that piece, where Bruce is 100 percent right, is that this is now being driven by the CEO and not being driven by the government relations people. You're seeing that tide starting to shift a little bit. and. The, the CEO is under a lot more pressure than he or she was uh, two years ago, three years ago, from their own workers in, in many cases. You know, and in that regard, David, it's the pressure felt in the hyper-global era, it was more of a Wall Street-driven pressure. 
to maximize shareholder value. You know, that's the Milton Friedman term in 1970. And what you saw is for some businesses, the way you can do that, at least in the short term, is relocate your intellectual property to Singapore, your information technology to Bangalore, your manufacturing to China, your assembly to Mexico. You send the uh, tax headquarters to Dublin and the CEO goes to Davos and talks about what a great, brilliant guy he is. Mm -hmm. That ain't cutting it anymore. And increasingly, businesses are realizing that you can't just win Washington and the world will follow. You need to have allies everywhere. Washington's often following itself. That you can't uh, just have a global function that supports everywhere around the world, that you need regional capabilities. Uh, that once upon a time, you wanted to show Wall Street how global you were. You now need to show Main Street you're local. And that involves a very different set of allies and a very different set of uh, tactics. Uh, and uh, to not get shot at, to not have markets closed off to you, to have the ability, and Tim Cook shows it as well as anybody, to have the ability to be really close both to President Obama and President Trump shows a pretty deft hand at, uh, at managing government relations. And it doesn't hurt when you make um, uh, that many billions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder, you know, there, there's also the push and pull from regulators, right? You know, I don't think anyone really, really thought they would have to regulate Facebook being a global network with that much information. I mean, you can see in recent hearings with any of the tech companies, I think Congress is still trying to figure out, and regulators themselves are like, God, what role do we play here? Or, should, you know, where's the, what's the light touch, wrong touch? Because, you know, the, the, the president, the administration have done a great job of cutting red tape, but, but it does lead to we're in a little bit of uncharted territory, and you're now having to have, you know, United States Congress taking a look at companies that are all over the planet. No, you're right. In particular, CR, in, in the tech world, you know, people have uh, forecast that we're going to have a splinter net mm -hmm. uh, for a long time. We've got one. And, and it's hard to see how everybody's going to come on sides on the same policies. In part, and we lay this out in our, uh, in our slide deck, uh, the main regions of the world have core different goals. So the goal in the EU is to protect people. They do that with heavy regulation. They yep. make sure that older industries are protected. Uh, the good news, I suppose, for EU citizens is there is a lot more likelihood of privacy protection, a lot more uh, aggressiveness after fake news, uh, but uh, there aren't a lot of tech startups. The U.S. goal has always been to empower people, so we've had light regulation. Let's let new startups emerge, and the challenge is that consumers and competitors feel underprotected, whether from fake news or from a dominant player like Amazon. Uh, for China, the goal of the Internet has been to control people. And with their, uh, with their social credit scores, with the Great Firewall, they're increasingly doing that. Uh, it's our hope and belief that the core layers of the Internet, the naming, the numbering, the connectivity will all be there. But as for the rules that impact you, if you're an entrepreneur, once upon a time you could sell to the entire three to four billion people online. Increasingly, you can't. They're clearly, especially in the tech space, there's been a number of questions raised, and I think CR on your point, the Facebooks, the Googles, the sure. Amazons, they've become so powerful, and who are they, what are they doing? There was a great uh, piece in yesterday's New York Times about Amazon and the impacts Amazon is having, not only kind of delivering us our Christmas presents as we enter the holiday season, uh, but also uh, dealing with artificial intelligence under the AWS uh, banner that they have. So what does that mean? How does that come together? There's clearly good and bad. Uh, there's been a, a little bad in the tech space that was not anticipated uh, th that Congress now has to deal with and figure out how does it fit. One thing it means is you should switch to walmart.com, which is, of course, better prices, better prices. and a far better uh, service. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll take a twist right back here at the end. Um, 
So, uh, some predictions um, from you guys. Uh, I'll get you on the record here. Who wins? Patriots are not going to win the Super Bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Nor are the Redskins. (laughs) So, who who is the Democratic? Who wins uh, Iowa? Who wins New Hampshire? And how many delegates, percentage-wise, does Mike Bloomberg get? Um, Good lord. Yeah, hard questions. Sorry, man. We're not here well, for a cupcake. So percentages. <laughs> I'll start with, I say Pete Buttigieg wins Iowa. Okay. Elizabeth Warren wins New Hampshire. Joe Biden wins South Carolina. And Bernie wins Nevada. Wow. So yeah. you do think they go... I they think go, it goes a four-way split. But now that you've switched, and David, you, you understand this better than I, but now that it's proportional, it's no longer the, you know, you lose by two votes and and, uh, and you lose the whole uh, shooting match. Um, it... it it does mean that the old Rudy Giuliani strategy of, you know, I'm waiting for Florida <laughs> didn't really work for Rudy because they don't like him there either. But uh, he's, he's waiting for Ukraine now. A, 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 a Super Tuesday strategy is not crazy. Yeah. It feels like a tougher putt for a uh, for a liberal white billionaire from New York uh, who's, uh, whose name is synonymous with Wall Street in the yeah. Democratic primary. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to kind of go on a limb, and I'm going to look at it a little differently. I think Warren's still going to hold on to Iowa. I think she's just organized incredibly well. She's been working at it for a long time. She's had staff in place. I think Warren probably wins New Hampshire, especially uh, winning those two. And then I think then the dynamic does start to change. And just by winning, that means you probably won some portion of the delegates. But that doesn't mean the media is going to say you won, right? right. We've all live through this. I think Buttigieg is going to come out stronger than they thought. Uh, Vice President Biden may look a little weaker than people thought as we move out. What does that mean moving forward? And then the the other piece of this uh, in, in that next grouping of candidates, the Harris's, the Booker's, the Bennett's, is there space for one of them to potentially you are look one like loyal a winner. guy. Uh, look like a winner. a great guy, but come on, Cassidy. <laughs> <Daddy. Michael Bennett. laughs> there, there's space for one one more winner in this uh, in this beginning. For um, sure. And th- and then the de- you know you, South Carolina and Nevada look way more like the Democratic Party than certainly Iowa and New Hampshire do. Well, and it feels to me that as you get to Super Tuesday, there are two races going on. The first race is will Bernie drop out? Because if Bernie drops out, I would think at least two-thirds of his voters go to Elizabeth Warren. Um, and if that happens, then she starts winning the old Trump plurality style. She will, she will consistently have the most because the, other, the rest are all divided. It, the other race that happens is if it looks like Elizabeth Warren's going to win, will the not-Bernie, not-Warren, moderate 50 to 60% of the party coalesce? Doesn't feel like Bernie's going to drop out to me because he doesn't really have anything better else to do. Doesn't feel like Joe Biden's gonna uh, it's gonna drop out because he thinks the third time is the charm. Um, so uh, so we may have a crazily splintered field going all the way to your convention. What do you think? Uh, so I think uh, I think right now, without knowing as much, I think Warren is stronger in Iowa than people give her credit for, and I think she'll whether she comes out with a really strong second or wins is going to have a lot of momentum going to New Hampshire. I actually think there's a chance that if you get through South Carolina and the vice president doesn't win South Carolina, what does he do? I mean, if he goes 0 for 3, it feels to me like that's over, and that's a huge chunk of votes. Uh, the other thing I'd say is just on the Bloomberg front, I'm fascinated by it. I, I, I am incredibly fascinated. If somebody's going to go spend that much money in California and Florida and Texas and basically not have to mess around in this early primary stuff, you know, as far as delegates go, does he show up with 30% of the delegates and say, let's make a deal? Yeah. I, that's not 
completely impossible. Dean Hanks, what do you think? The, the other point for you guys, so in, in, in this splintered world with proportional delegate halls, and you've reformed your superdelegate system, so their votes do not count on the first ballot when you get to Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. um, you've got a solid chance at a, uh, at a, at a brokered convention. I, I think it's probably yeah, way better than 50% than that, my guess. And then there's our convention. <laughs> well, Brokered convention. <laughs> Brokered or broken? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the, I, I don't know where the Weld campaign is uh, in Poland. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's not brokered. That's a full-on Chinese hack. That's funny. Well, uh, uh, Bruce Melman, David Castagnetti, and uh, and new co-pilot Dean Hingson. Uh, thanks for coming. Thank, Thank you. you CR. Thanks, Cr.